turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read beginning in verse 20 and continue on through verse 24. And you'll have to uh, bear with me this morning. I um, have been a basketball coach this, uh, this season and we just got to our tournament uh, this weekend. Uh, one of the games went to double overtime and I was yelling quite a bit. And we didn't win. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against you. It was disparity that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we worked with you to your joy that you stand. him as the worst president on the planet, I think, uh, which was fun to watch. I always like the different perspectives. Um, of course, I, I imagine some here would think he's probably the best president that they've ever heard of, but uh, I'm cynical in all ways, so I, I don't think any president has been up to snuff, if you will, that I've uh, seen, heard of, even since George Washington. But nevertheless, uh, it's interesting, uh, our take on what the ideal president is and you know, every year I think they vote on uh, who is the worst president of the United States throughout the history, and there's always a top ten list, if you will. Um, but I think if you were to vote on the worst kings uh, in Israel and in Judah, King Ahaz would certainly be in the top three, if not the worst. Um, perhaps Jeroboam might beat him to the title, but King Ahaz was um, a very evil king uh, from the start. Uh, at the very beginning of his reign, he continued to waver between worshiping the one true God and various forms of idolatry. In addition to offering sacrifices unto the Lord of his temple, he was uh, one of the kings who continued to build Asherah poles throughout the land. In other words, he was building shrines to, to different gods um, so that all of his people, including himself, would worship any god but the one true God on every high hill around uh, Jerusalem. And when those sacrifices didn't work, he didn't get what he wanted from worshiping in this way, uh, he then began to bribe um, men, uh, he particularly bribed the Assyrians to help him in battle. And in order to do that, he stole all the gold and silver from the temple in order to pay off the Assyrians to help him in battle. 
So that's, that's uh, certainly not a good thing. <laughs> then on, on one occasion, when he was in Damascus, he, he saw an altar in a pagan temple that he was very fond of. So he, he uh, charged his high priest to make a sketch of that altar in order to replace God's holy altar. And so he put out the, uh, the bronze altar from the courtyard of, uh, of later what would be the temple and replaced it with this pagan altar instead that he thought was more grand and beautiful. Of course, the, there are a number of things of that nature, but in addition to that, uh, he got to the point where even these things didn't amount to much, so uh, he was in a bind on a few occasions, and when he was really uh, not winning in battle, he began to sacrifice his own sons to foreign gods. Not just one son, says sons plural he burned in the fire to the god Moloch to help him overcome his enemies so it just gets worse and worse it eventually gets to the point where he begins to break down the vessels in the house of God to sell those things off to bribe his enemies and then finally he gets to the point where he boards up the house of the Lord altogether for the rest of his reign in other words no one can go in the temple because he no longer worships the one true God at all. He only worships the false gods at this point. Talk about a bad king, but then in addition to that, certainly he's a bad dad, bad father. Hezekiah, we read the passage this morning from Second Chronicles 29. Uh, Hezekiah was one of the sons who escaped the fire. Uh, we sometimes refer to uh, Christians as brands plucked from the fire. This guy really was plucked from the fire. And as soon as his dad passed away, within the very first month of Hezekiah's reign, he seeks to overturn everything that his dad did. And I mean everything. And it's, it's the, the thing that you would be praying for for generations, that, that some godly king would come to the throne. And so Hezekiah finally comes to the throne. And again, in that first month, he opens up the doors of the temple. That sounds pretty sad. We have to open the temple doors again, right? Uh, we see in Josiah's ministry, they have to find the Bible again because they had lost it from evil kings. So in addition to that, he begins to repair the holy furniture. He begins to remove all the foreign elements and all the filth in the temple, he says. He begins to relight the lamps to replace the loaves of bread upon the table to... Again, uh, burn the daily incense upon the golden altar of incense. And he does all of these things um, out of his love for the Lord. But he, he doesn't do any of these things by himself. In fact, he can't even go into the temple because he's not a priest. He's a king. And so he charges these priests and these Levites to do these things um, uh, with the authority of God. It must have been a tough job because literally said it took him 16 days just to clean out all the filth from the temple, 16 days. That's how dirty it was. And in order to replace all of the items that had been broken and then sold off. So these holy men were charged first to consecrate the, themselves and then to consecrate the house that once again um, offerings might be made both in forgiveness, for forgiveness of sin and also for the praise of God. And uh, the king particularly charges them not to be negligent in these matters, for the Lord had chosen them to stand firm in this way, to be his holy ministers, to offer these 
uh, holy offerings unto God. And, and as we said, Mark is then reading for us uh, the outcome of this, the great joy and all the great offerings that they made, and they just wanted to sing songs of joy continually unto the Lord because finally um, the Lord is welcome again in their midst, if you will. So it's interesting, Second Corinthians, the, the book that we've been studying, Paul uses much of the same language that the chronicler uses in Second Chronicles in terms of the Lord establishing his people, consecrated them to root out all of the evil in God's house. But this time, not in the temple in Jerusalem, but this time in the church of God in Corinth, that these things had to be rooted out in order that they might make spiritual sacrifices unto God and that God might dwell in their midst. So I'll give you some background on this. There's a passage in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, where Paul calls the Christians in Ephesus members of the house of God that is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So instead of building an inanimate temple, an inanimate building like Solomon's temple, the Lord is creating an organic temple made up entirely of people instead of bricks and mortar. So the Apostle Peter then uses that same language in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, saying to the churches in Asia Minor, he says, as you come to him, that is, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, so the church in Corinth, similar to the, the churches in Ephesus and also the churches in Asia Minor that I just mentioned, uh, these are now members of the household of God. They're all living stones. They are a part of the temple of God itself. We who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are all living stones that are a part of the temple of God so that the Holy Spirit might come and dwell within us, that God's glory, his Shekinah glory might come and dwell within us. But that can only be carried out if we continue to allow the Holy Spirit to do his work within us. He's the Holy Spirit. He, he wants to make this place holy. He wants to make us Holy. So if, if we allow pagan idolatry and other forms of sin to continue to dwell within us, to let that filth stay within us instead of rooting it out, instead of cleansing it out, then God cannot dwell in those vessels. God cannot dwell in, in the midst. Sin must be rooted out. God's temple must be cleansed. God's priest must be consecrated in order that God might dwell there in their midst. In fact, I asked the question in Bible study the other night when the Israelites were called to be holy, to be separate from the pagans. I asked the question, why? Why does God call Israel to be separate from these foreign nations? It's, the primary purpose is simply so that God can dwell with his people. He wants to be with us. But he can only do that. A holy God can only be with an unholy people if they are made holy. They're made uh, saints and sanctified. Apart from those sacrifices in the Old Testament, apart from that repentance, God could not abide with them. In the same way, it works in the New Testament, where we see in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus tells the church in Ephesus, 
to repent of their sins. He says, if you don't repent, I will remove your lampstand from its place. What does he mean by that? He means, I'm going to remove my light from you. I'm going to remove my glory from you because you refuse to repent of the sin that's taking place in the church. So in order for God to dwell with his people, they just can't constantly live in unrepentant sin. It doesn't work that way. It has to be dealt with. God's house has to be consecrated from its desecrations, from its defilements. So as we consider the context again, where's Paul going with this? Well, if you remember, Paul had written this first letter to the Corinthians, and in that first letter he had addressed a particular sin, a discipline case that was unresolved. And we think that perhaps it's from that, that passage that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, an instance in which a man, literally it says a man had taken his father's wife into his own bed. And Paul says, you have done things that even the pagans don't allow. You have allowed this type of sin to go on in the church, and you've not addressed it. You've not rooted out that sin. You've not dealt with it in the proper manner. And so Paul tells the Corinthians to excommunicate this man, to turn him over to Satan for a time for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved. So in other words, he's saying, push him out of the church. Let him feel the extent of his sin. Let him feel the extent of being an outsider so he would come to a census. So he would repent. And it's this imagery of being inside and outside of the church that he's focusing on when he even mentions, he, he, he sort of references the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, asking them this question in 1 Corinthians, he says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What does he mean? Well, just as leaven is, is sort of a, an agent that continues to infiltrate the rest of the of, of the bread, the same way he says, sin, if you left it, if you let it go unchecked, it will continue to affect everything within that same body. And so in the same manner, uh, Revelation chapter 2, the Lord Jesus himself rebukes another church, just as Paul has rebuked Corinth. He rebukes the church in Thyatira. He says, for tolerating the woman Jezebel in their midst, who has been seducing God's people to practice sexual immorality. He says, you should have cast her out. You should have excommunicated her, but you didn't. And Paul warned, and in that case, Jesus is warning, he's going to remove the lampstand. The same way Paul is saying, you have to deal with this, but they hadn't. And so if this is the type of issue that the church in Corinth is dealing with, it seems that it is, Paul had come when he heard about this to deal with this discipline case, and apparently the church didn't respond well to his rebukes. And they, for one reason or another, uh, didn't deal with the man. And some, in fact, were grieved because of what Paul was saying. This is very normal. I'll tell you, every time we ever see a, a discipline case, particularly in a denomination, there will always be those who are, I mean, I don't know how you would classify them, but they're, you know, very word-oriented, and, and they will, you know, want to see the Word of God glorified. Sometimes they might come across as mean, maybe. Sometimes that's the case. Then, on the other hand, you have those that are, you might call more liberal, and they're just open to everything, right? And then you have that big group that's much bigger in the middle. You know what I'm talking about? Those people are just all in the middle, and they're always just like, let's just everybody go along. Let's everybody just be nice. And it's that group that's primarily grieved by Paul because they're like, why are you had to, why are you had to go stirring things up again? Why are you agitating everything again? And the reason why Paul is seen as this fiendish sort of a man is because he knows God cannot dwell in the midst of that church 
if they don't deal with that sin. Because it'll continue to infiltrate it to the point where it's no longer a church, but rather, as Jesus would call it, a synagogue of Satan. Because you no longer worship the one true God. You now have allowed in all sorts of idolatry and pagan uh, practices. So the Apostle Paul is assuring them uh, that he has not done this in a mean spirit. He's not done this to lord it over them in their faith. He's not trying to just be this awful overseer, but rather he's doing it for their joy. He's doing it so that they would experience the same joy that the Israelites experienced when Do I need to switch over? It's funny. I, I had just uh, told a couple of elders this morning, I was like, I think my battery's probably going to run out soon. I'm a prophet, didn't know it. <laughs> anyway, um, he says, he, he's, uh, you'll see in this passage, Paul is working for their joy. He wants them to know the joy of Christ, the same type of joy that the Israelites experienced when they finally dealt with their sin, when they finally repented. Uh, a big part of the, um, a big part of any type of revival in a church is the idea of repentance over sin. Um, it starts with faith and repentance. It doesn't start from just choosing joy, but the idea of you're choosing Christ. And when you choose Christ, joy will come. And so this is what he's speaking about. He's referring to the same type of joy that the chronicler speaks of in, in his ministry that finally these things are cleansed. Thank you very much. He's not trying to hurt them. He wants to help them. He wants them to experience that joy. So instead of pitting himself against the church in Corinth, he begins to speak of them on the same terms that he speaks of himself, that they have a, a mutual calling to do this, that Paul is not the priest here. They're all priests. They're all Levites, if you will called to cleanse out the sin that's in the midst of the church, that they would work together. And that's anytime there's a church discipline case, it should always be that way. It should never be the leaders pitted against the people trying to be mean to some person. But it's the idea, rather, that the whole church sees there's a leaven here that's infecting the church, that's defiling the body of Christ, that's blaspheming the name of Christ if we don't deal with this. And so he wants to begin to speak to them about what they have in common and how they can regain that joy. So I want to look this morning, particularly at verses 21 and 22, to consider carefully what God has done in the life of his people to bring about this joyful ministry amongst the saints. Let me read the two verses again. Paul says there, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, I, I want to focus on each one of these, these terms, if you will, these works of God. First, I want to talk about how God establishes us in Christ. Then second, I want to talk about how he has anointed us. Third, how he has sealed us. And fourth, how he has guaranteed his promises to us in Christ. You'll notice the first one is in the present tense, but it's an ongoing thing, whereas the other uh, three have all been accomplished already in the past. But let's consider the first one, how God establishes us in Christ. So the, the word establish, uh, as it's used in the Greek here, means to give a solid footing to stand on. 
that one might walk, if you will, on solid ground. So if you think of the earthquake that took place in Turkey, uh, no one's being tossed back and forth. It's very stable. It's solid ground, something to walk on that you know it's sure, it's, it's certain. And Paul's using the word here, obviously not to say a, a, a literal uh, piece of land that someone is walking upon, but rather the Christian faith that a Christian can walk with certainty knowing that he's not going to fall, that he's not going to lose his standing, if you will, with God because Christ has made that firm for him. So why does he emphasize this now, this idea of a, um, a establishment in Christ? Paul, Paul's point that he made earlier when he's defending his ministry uh, against those who have been accusing him of different things, he, he's telling him, I'm not vacillating between two opinions. I'm not wavering between yes and no. In the same way, here now he's saying, I'm not vacillating in my entire Christian life, and neither are you. We all have been established in Christ to where Christ pronounces this yes over who we are so that we have some assurance that I'm not going to lose what Christ has already gained for us. This is, this is very important, absolutely necessary, that we understand this point uh, in our faith before we can move forward in our joy. What I mean by that is this. There will never be a point in your life in which you can finally say, I have arrived in my Christianity. There will never come a point in, in your faith in which you can finally say, I have established myself in Christ. And the reason why you can't say that is because you don't do that. That's God's doing. It's not your own. God does all of this. The very reason that we can't say these things is because it's God who establishes us in Christ. Because Christ has already won our reward, there's nothing for you to win. There's nothing for me to win. It's already been won. And because Christ has already carried out all the good works that God requires to get into heaven, there's not a single good work that you can do that will enable you to, become, to, to, to be admitted into heaven. It's already done. It's already been won. It's already been carried out. It's, it's accomplished because Christ has already made atonement for all of your sins and has granted forgiveness of sins based upon his completed work. There's nothing that you can offer. There's no sacrifice that you can make that would appease the wrath of God because what? It's already been appeased. His wrath has already been taken care of. God is at peace with you. You don't have to do anything to earn that, to win that, to deserve that from the Lord. Because his wrath has already been satisfied, Christ has already done it all. That's why he says at the end of his time on the cross, what? Those three words. It is finished. There's nothing for you to finish in that sense. It has already been done. It's already been won. And because of that, you are established. Because of that, you're founded upon the completed works of Christ. In order to enter into the joy of his service, you have to get this right first. You have to understand there's nothing that you can do that will enable God to love you more. There's nothing that you can do that will enable God to say, okay, I guess he's good enough. No, because of what Christ has already done, God looks at you, he sees Christ, he sees perfection, he sees goodness, he sees righteousness, he sees holiness, and he pronounces his blessing upon you. That is our establishment in Christ because of what Christ has already done. Without that, you're always going to be wondering, where do I stand with Christ? And you should never have to feel that way because it's never based upon you. It's never based upon your works. 
Never based upon something you will win. It's already been won. You can rest in that because of the gospel of Christ. I remember not long after my wife and I were married, someone bought us a very large potted plant. And on the pot, uh, they had written, the Bolin household established 1999. I thought that was very cute. It's crazy to think that was married over a century ago now. Last, last century, you get it, right? Um, but if you think about your establishment in Christ, it's something that was won over two millennia ago. It's done. It's established. You can't establish yourself. You have been established, and it has been done. And Christ will continue to establish you as he continues to pronounce his yes and amen upon you. Because it's already done. It's already been won. You can rest in that. In order to do joyful service unto God, you have to get this right. If you don't, if you don't start with that, and you start with you trying to work to try to earn something, to try to please God in some way, you're going to miss the gospel. You're going to ruin everything. You have to get this right. God has established you already, and he will continue to establish you all the days of your life. That's number one. Number two, in addition to that, God is the one who has anointed us in Christ for his service. You know, in ancient times, it was customary for kings and priests and, and prophets um, uh, to be anointed in some way, to sh in some sort of religious ceremony, which oil was poured over their head in order to receive God's calling, if you will. The oil was meant to signify this divine influence, this divine authority, this divine power that would say, not only have they been called to this task, but now they've been granted the power to complete it. Of course, the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah are all pointing to someone who is to come, who is a if you will, a super anointed person. The word Messiah literally means the, what? Anointed one, right? This person would not only be anointed as a king, but also anointed as a priest, and also anointed as a prophet. Everything, every, every person in the Old Testament, in their great power and the authority they had, they are all pointing, or every king points us to Christ. Every priest points us to Christ. Every prophet points us to Christ, the one who is the ruler, the one who is the high priest, the one who is the one who gives us the word daily. All of this is fulfilled in Christ. And so what we find in the New Testament, the same term, uh, the Greek term that's used for Christ is a, um, the Greek version of the Hebrew term for Messiah. But Christ means the same thing, the anointed one, right? So when we get to our term that's used here today in our text for anointing, it's the same, uh, it's a root of that same word in the Greek. Instead of Christ, it's creo, um, and it basically means one who has been, the, the anointed one has anointed you, if you will. Or you could say it in this way, uh, the one who has been saved by Christ is now Christed, or christened might be a, a term that you might be more familiar with. But the idea is that the anointed one has given you this now anointing to continue to do the works that he did, to continue in the very uh, service of God but under the umbrella of Christ's ministry. Notice here the Apostle Paul doesn't just refer to the apostles as being anointed in this way, but every single believer in Christ has received this confirmation from God as well as this consecration to service. Uh, in fact, um, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 19-20, um, the Apostle John speaks not only of his fellow apostles, but everyone in the church. He's re reaffirming their faith in light of some who had walked away from the church. 
And he, and he says, after these have walked away, he says this, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for, they have not, for if they had been of us, they would, not, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But he says this, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. You have been set aside. You have been consecrated. You have been anointed by the Holy Spirit himself. This is, this is part of your confirmation. This is part of your consecration to the Lord and his service. Now, I, I know some of you probably have come out of a Roman Catholic background and have gone through the sacrament of confirmation. Raise your hand if this is too. No, no, no. I, I know a number of you have. Uh, in, in that case, what you had to do is you had to kneel before a priest or a bishop, and they would pour out upon your head what was called a chrism oil. Same word in the Greek. It's a, it's a type of oil that's an anointing oil to set you aside unto the Lord in his service. It's the point of the, of, of, of the rite, if you will. And I think the, the Catholics have the concept right here, but I, I think what Paul is saying here is not that you're to be anointed by oil in a physical way by a physical priest or bishop, but rather that this has already happened in the past. This has already taken place, not by a human being uh, who is here on earth now, but rather by Christ through his spirit, this has taken place. Thus, anyone who is already in Christ Jesus has already been anointed by him, consecrated by him for his service. I'll get to why he points this out here in a few minutes, but in the meantime, it's, it's important to understand, it's Christ who anoints us with the oil of gladness. Because of what he's already done, he now gives us the joy of being in relationship with him. In the same way, it's because we are already called Christians. We're already anointed by Christ to do his works. This is not something that we have to uh, add to ourselves later on. When you're called to be his children, when you're called to be his saints, when you're called to be his sheep, you're also called into his service uh, to continue the work that Christ has done. All of this flows out of his anointing. Again, I'll come back to this in a minute, but let's go on to the third one. In addition to our establishment in Christ, in our anointing in Christ, Paul also says that we've been sealed in Christ. Now, again, in, in ancient times, uh, I think many of you know that uh, there was a seal that was often placed on letters uh, as well as on uh, even sacks and other objects of different kinds uh, for, for basically two primary reasons. One was to keep others from tampering with what was inside. Again, something was meant to be a secret, if you will. Something was meant to be hidden from certain eyes, so a seal would be placed upon uh, that particular object. And we see this uh, particularly in, in prophetical books, in, in the books of Daniel and the book of Revelation. For instance, in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, chapter 12, the prophet refers to certain prophecies that were to be shut up and to be kept secret until the end time, right? So this is why I said I, I wanted to preach on Daniel before I get to Revelation, because then later in Revelation chapter 5, we see these same prophecies now being revealed. The seal is being removed. God is now making plain what was kept secret for so long. We now have an unveiling, if you will, of God's will. But, but there's also a second reason for sealing, and this is the one that Paul is using here in our context to signify that of ownership and authority on a particular document or object, and in this case, a person. We'll talk about that in a minute. But again, two passages, one in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4. There the Lord had commanded that a seal be placed on the foreheads of the men who sighed and groaned over all the abominations that had been committed in the city of Jerusalem. And the purpose of that sealing 
was so that when the angel of destruction comes and brings his wrath upon the city, those who had the seal of God on their forehead would be passed over. They wouldn't experience this judgment, but the others would. So again, we see this later on in Revelation chapter 7, verses 3 through 8, when John sees these 144,000 people with a seal of God on their forehead, they are marked out as being servants of God so that they wouldn't be destroyed along with the others in this great tribulation. So in, in these passages, the purpose of the sealing is primarily to designate those who are gods versus those who are not. Of course, it was a physical seal, at least in terms of the prophecy that they were foreseeing. So a typical seal in ancient times was generally um, uh, done with wax, right? So both the seal itself as well as the instrument that was used to make the indentation in the wax, both of them were referred to as a seal. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I'm very glad that wax is not used now to designate us as the people of God. I mean, that would be very painful and probably doesn't last anyway. You'd have to have it applied numerous times. Uh, I'm also glad that we don't have some sort of, uh, I don't know, branding or some other type of thing that, uh, you know, this is the seal of God upon them in their flesh, if you will, or even a tattoo. That's not the point here, though, because Paul is saying that it's not a physical seal that's been applied to the, the believers in Christ, but rather a spiritual seal that has been applied to them that marks them out as belonging to Christ give you a couple of passages to prove this. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says to the believers in Ephesus, you were sealed with what? The promised Holy Spirit. Likewise, in Ephesians 4, verse 30, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So it only makes sense that the sealing that he's referring to is a spiritual seal as opposed to a physical. In fact, uh, we see Romans 8, verse 9, one last one. I want to show you. Paul explains the sealing in this way. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. For anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So it's not a physical seal that marks out the people of God, but rather a spiritual seal, and the spiritual seal is the Holy Spirit himself. He is the seal that shows that you are owned by God, that you are uh, under the authority of God, that you are marked out as one of his people. And because of that, we see even in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about you are not your own. You were bought at a price. And the very seal of the Holy Spirit shows that you are now owned by him. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. Glorify God with your lives. Rather, the other person who doesn't have this seal is going to walk in the flesh. They're not going to walk in the Spirit. And their walking in the flesh proves, in some way or another, that they don't have the seal of the Holy Spirit. So it's not those who have been merely baptized with water. That's not the mark. It's not those who have been had, who have had oil applied to their foreheads. It's not those who have maybe had, had ashes applied to their foreheads. It's not some outward physical sign that designates you as a believer in Christ, but rather the spiritual seal of God. And this is what the prophets mean when in the future they would see these people who have been marked out with a, a seal upon their foreheads. It, it's a, the, the Holy Spirit is the seal upon them. It's not a, a physical number, if you will. We'll come back to this. Number four. Let me, let, me, let me get you up to speed. Finally, in addition to being established in Christ, being anointed by Christ, sealed in him, we also have been given Christ's spirit in our hearts as a guarantee of salvation. Now, that's a, a, another, the, the Greek word guarantee is, a, is another term that's used primarily in a commercial setting. 
in, uh, in Scripture. It's actually a word that's on loan from the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians were the ones that coined the term originally. If you remember, the Phoenicians were the, the great traders of the Mediterranean Sea. They were the ones who had all the ships, and they're going back and forth and trading goods with different countries. Well, there would be times where they would have a full ship, and they would sell all of their goods, but yet they'd end up in a port of call. And when they got there, someone still wanted to buy their wares, and they didn't have anything left to sell them except perhaps one or two objects, uh, one or two vessels, one or two uh, pieces of merchandise. And so what they would do is they would give them that one object, and that one object, that one piece of, uh, of ware uh, would be used as a, a promise of a, a, an engagement, a legal arrangement between them to deliver more goods when they come back into that same port of call. And so they would give it to them as a deposit, if you will, of still more things to come, a foretaste of more goods yet to come. And it's in this context that Paul is using the term to refer to the Holy Spirit as a deposit of more things yet to come, more promises of God that have already been declared to be yes and amen in Christ. You haven't gotten them yet. You haven't received it all yet, but they're already yours. You have the deposit, the proof of the promises of God, to the fact the Holy Spirit already dwells within you. He is the deposit. He is the guarantee. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 14. He says, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our eternal inheritance until we acquire the full possession of it. It's the Holy Spirit that, that marks us out as having this more still to come. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5 says the same thing. Uh, Paul says, he who has prepared us for this very thing, that is immortal life, has given us his spirit as a guarantee. He is the deposit. He is the guarantee of all the promises coming to fruition uh, because of his indwelling within us. So just as the Phoenicians had given one object to, uh, to show uh, this great deposit, God has deposited within us his Holy Spirit. Uh, that, all, that when Christ returns, if you will, uh, in his glory, he's coming with all the goods. And they're all promised to you, and you have the Holy Spirit as the guarantee that when he comes, you get it all. It's all yours. In fact, it says you'll inherit the whole earth. All of it is yours in Christ Jesus. It's interesting, though, again, if you take the modern-day term, how it's used, the same word in the Greek that's referred to this deposit or guarantee is also the word that's used for an engagement ring in modern-day Greece, which makes sense, does it not? Because basically the, the fiancé, the groom-to-be, is giving an object to his wife and saying, Here's my promise to you that many more good things are coming. All the good is coming to you, right? Uh, this is all coming in the future. I promise you now, more is still yet to come. Of course, the, the issue, though, is the Holy Spirit is not a physical object, right? He's not a ring. He's not, you know, an outward form of water or ashes or any other type of physical demonstration, but it's a spiritual seal. So the question begs to ask, well, then how do you know? if you have this seal? How do you know if you have this guarantee, this deposit from God? It's always ultimately going to come down to our relationship with Christ. Because the Holy Spirit is the very Spirit of Christ, He always seeks to confirm our interest in Christ. He always seeks to consecrate us to service to Christ. So one of the first signs that the Holy Spirit is at work in the life of believers is simply that of faith in Christ. When someone trusts and rests in Christ and knows he's established in Christ, that's a good sign that the Holy Spirit's at work in this person. I mean, it's 
Not always a guarantee in our, from, from the outsider's perspective, but it can be from the inside. Galatians 4, verse 6, Paul says, Because you are sons of God, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying what? Abba, Father. What happens is the Spirit is the one who makes us cry out to God as our Father. We want to look to Him. We want to rely upon Him. We want to confess our sins to Him. The Holy Spirit is the one who moves us to do this in a way that prior to coming to faith in Christ, that was not your desire at all. You didn't see God as your Father. You didn't see Him as, the, as, as, as your friend. You didn't see Him as the one who could help you at all times. Likewise, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Again, he doesn't mean that in some sort of magical sense. Well, any unbeliever can just go, Jesus is Lord. That's not what he means. He means that when a Christian does this, not just individually in private or in passing, but when someone does this publicly, and not just at the time of their conversion, but throughout their life, and even in times of persecution, continues to say, what? Jesus is Lord. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Right? I talked to um, a friend of mine that uh, also went into ministry, and we said that uh, we didn't feel like we had been persecuted enough for our faith in Christ, that once we get to retirement age, if you will, we'll both just go to Saudi Arabia and just go on the public square at the top of our lungs and just say, Muhammad's a false prophet, Jesus is Lord! And then we'll both be killed. I wouldn't recommend doing that. Um, but the point is, if you are willing to do that, regardless of the circumstances, only the Holy Spirit can do that. Any other person is going to be a coward and walk away and say, I don't want anything to do with Christ. Same manner, Paul says in Romans 14, verse 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So here now he's talking about the fruits, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He's saying if the Holy Spirit is at work in you, he'll begin to develop these things within you. Righteousness, peace, joy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All of these things are beginning to flow out of you because the Holy Spirit is in you. These are evidences that the Holy Spirit is sealing you, that he's deposited within you, that you are one of his. It's not going to be an outward display of some physical thing, but it's going to be an outward display of what's in your heart. It's going to change your heart to want these things, and you can now enter into the joy of the Lord. In the same way, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, also, every aspect of our sanctification is by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is just making common sense, right? Why is he called the Holy Spirit? Because he makes us holy. If someone is growing in holiness, it's evidence of the deposit of the Holy Spirit within them. Um, and then 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, the Apostle Paul says, uh, the Apostle John says, whoever keeps Christ's commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us and we know that by the, Spirit of whom, by the Spirit whom he has given us. So again, he's saying, if you keep his commands, you're seeking to grow in your ability to love the Lord and his law and, and are walking according to the wisdom of God's word, this too is an evidence that the Holy Spirit is within you. Uh, in fact, uh, if you think about it, the whole book of 1 John is written for this very purpose, to grant you assurance of salvation. And it grants you assurance of salvation by showing you the work of the Holy Spirit within you. It's not to put, put a checklist and say, well, I did this, I did this, I guess I'm good, you know. But rather, the Holy Spirit is within you, 
and he's causing you to know Christ, to love Christ, to walk with Christ, to serve Christ, and when that is beginning to flesh out in your life, that should grant you much assurance of salvation, that God is indeed not only working for you, but is at work in you. Now, now what does all this have to do with Paul's argument? Let's go back to the beginning. Again, he's originally seeking to defend himself against those who are accusing him of vacillating between two opinions. But he explains in verse 23 that he's refrained from coming to Corinth, not because he didn't love the brothers, but because he loved them too much to bring them unnecessary pain and grief, knowing that they were grieved so much by his last visit. So he, he tells in verse 24, he's delayed in coming to see them, not because he wants to lord it over them or to oppress them in some way, but rather because he wants to share the joy of the Lord with them. He has a joy that comes from God by the deposit of the Holy Spirit within him. He wants to share that joy with them. And so just as King Hezekiah is seeking to confirm and consecrate priests to cleanse out the temple in Jerusalem, Paul is saying, I have come to do the same thing. My job is to call you, to consecrate you, to cleanse out this filth in the church so that you can enjoy the same joy the Israelites did back then. So he's reminding the believers in Corinth of how King Jesus, the Messiah himself, has called them all to do this work together. It's not just the apostles' work. It's all of the whole church of God were called to do this. And so Christ continues to call us to that same joy today. It's through holiness that we grow in joy, not apart from holiness. hard part is it's through suffering that we grow in holiness that we get more joy goes back to the first sermon about comfort. We get the comfort in the midst of our sufferings. We get the joy in the midst of our sufferings that causes us to grow more in holiness and then grow more in joy. The problem is the sinner wants to cut off any aspect of repentance, any aspect of pain, any aspect of suffering, and just say, give me joy. It doesn't work that way. It has to come through faith and through repentance. So the very purpose of Paul's ministry the very purpose of my own ministry and the ministry of the elders here of the church is not to lord it over you. Our job is not to overburden you or overwhelm you or, or to try to show that somehow we're better than you. Our purpose, as the writer of Hebrews says, is to keep watch over your souls in order to bring this type of joy to your life. And the only way we can do that is by at times pointing out the sin and saying, you need to repent. And he says, ultimately, if you want to grow in your faith and you want to have this type of joy, he says purposely, the, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, he says, you might actually want to listen to your leaders. You might want to obey them so that their job becomes a joy and not a matter of groaning itself. He says, for that will be of no advantage to you at all. He says, if you want to grow in joy, give joy to your leaders. <laughs> if you want to grow in joy, root out the sin. You want to grow in joy, you have to seek Christ, and the Holy Spirit is going to continue to do that, and there's going to be a battle within you every day of your life to fight against the sin so that you can have more joy, so you can enter into Christ's joy. That's what he wants for you. He's not trying to hurt you. <laughs> he wants your joy, and that's why he hates your sin. That's why he hates my sin. That's why he continues to speak to us in this way and to give us his word that not only encourages us and exhorts us, but also corrects us and rebukes us 
and points us back to faith and repentance, faith and repentance, faith and repentance, so we can enter into his joy. Make sense? Amen. Let's go to prayer. Father, we ask that you would help us. We are naturally afraid of, uh, of anyone pointing out uh, any flaw or deficiency in us. We are naturally afraid of, of, of being uh, shown to be that somehow we're less than, um, than what we ought to be, less than perfect, but we know that it's true. We know that Christ is the only perfect one. We know that he is the one by whom we are established. We know that he is the one who has anointed us for this service. We know that he is the one who has sent us his Holy Spirit both to seal us and to guarantee our salvation. Lord, help us to enter into that joy, not being afraid to deal with the sin, not being afraid to root out the filth within the church, but instead, Lord, to do the same thing the Israelites did, to enter into that revival through faith and repentance, looking only to Jesus. We pray all these things.